This year, 1996, is the 50th anniversary of the setting up of Anforsa Kusanta O'Toole, otherwise known as the FCA. But to get the full story of the force, we must reel back to the year 1939 and Article 54 of the Emergency Powers Order of that year, which gave the authority for the establishment of a temporary special police force in Ireland. You are now here on T-shirt, Mr. Eamon de Valera. Mr. de Valera. Our nation is in danger. We can save it only by organizing to defend it. We are weak to behave cravenly now and weakly to permit the liberties that have been so bravely won to be taken from us. We should deserve the contempt and the odium of the generations we shall have sold into, into servitude. In addition to the armed forces, we want another force, namely the force for local security. We want men, young and old, who are prepared to give a portion of their time for observation, patrol and intelligence work in their own locality. Every man can help and every man counts. If, as a people, we face this crisis as men of metal will face it, not only shall we come through it most securely, but it may, in fact, prove a boon to us, welding us all more closely together, making us more self-reliant, more hard-working, more disciplined, and fitting us for the great role we may have to play later in a war-devastated world. This local security force, or the LSF, was established in June 1940 when the German breakthrough in the West, the surrender of France and the expulsion of the British from the continent appeared to threaten imminent danger of Irish involvement in hostilities. You are now here, Dr. T.F. O'Higgins, TD, member of the National Defence Conference. Dr. O'Higgins. It is difficult to discuss existing dangers with clarity and bluntness from inside the four corners of a neutral fence. Let us not make the mistake of thinking that neutrality in itself is any protection. Many neutral countries have been trampled by invasion. We may, of course, speculate as to the possible or probable source of danger, or as to its dimension. But no speculations or doubts must be allowed to cause hesitation or delay in perfecting our defences by responding to the call. I appeal to all to serve in some capacity. Join the army if you can. 
or join the security force. Let us see every mile of every Irish road patrolled by day and by night so that no lark can leave the sky unobserved. No seal can leave the sea or no rat can cross the road. The main objective of the local security force was to create in every locality in the country a network of volunteers who would engage actively in a range of security duties in order to ensure that any hostile action from without or any action from within the country which would impede its neutrality should be reported to the appropriate authorities with the minimum delay. The LSF was also to prepare itself to assist the Garda Shikona in various ways in the event of attacks on the country or indeed in the event of actual invasion. Radio Aaron. You will now hear Mr. James Dillon, TD, member of the National Defence Conference. My friends, it has been said that democracies can never make up their minds in time to provide against the dangers that lie ahead. And that they are prepared to take the drastic measures necessary for the defence of their independence only when disaster is upon them. Personally, I have no doubt of the source from which this threat of invasion comes. And I don't believe that any reasonable citizen of this state has much doubt about it either. And in that circumstance, I tell you that it is the duty of every one of us to resist that invasion with all the resources at our disposal. Nor need any of us have any doubt as to the most effective contribution we can make to meet this danger. Every man and woman in Ireland can share in the work of protecting our country and our people now by going to the nearest Garda station and registering there for service in the volunteers, the regular army, the local security corps, or in the case of women, the Red Cross. Responsibility for the recruitment, training and direction was vested exclusively in the Garda Shirkhana and its organisation was based firmly on Garda Shirkhana districts. Each Garda district was expected to organise a number of service groups, such as an intelligence and observation group, a communications group, a transport group, an engineer group, a supply group and a first aid group. And there was also to be a combat group, which would be armed for the defence of Garda stations and vital installations in the district. Each district was expected to organise a number of service groups and these were there to be there to provide services that the Garda would deploy if there was bombing or if there was invasion or if there was evacuation of refugees or anything that was required. They weren't sure that it was declared yourself neutral is one thing. But I mean, after all, the Belgians and the Dutch were neutral. What good did it do them? Rotterdam was still bombed, wasn't it? 
you know. And they, they had that in front of them when they were drawn up this emergency power shelter. Every Garda division had these services. Now, the combat group, it was only an afterthought. You know, the people doing these things might need protection. But the point about it was, everybody wants to be in the combat group. You see, or certainly anyone under the age of 40, under the age of 45. And you know, there were guys older than that with black 1916 ribbons on their tunics and all the rest of them. Oh, looked like they were going to be in the combat group. They were soldiers, you know. Everybody wants that was, that was the psychology of war. Within three months, the strength of the new force had risen to 180,000, a majority of whom wished to serve in the combat groups. Weapons for such numbers were not readily available, and the Garda Shirkona did not have the resources to train such numbers for a military or paramilitary role. Nevertheless, the men who joined, and the public at large, saw the LSF as a volunteer army raised to assist the defence of the country against invasion. Following the magazine raid, we had the period of what was now called the Phony War. And during that period, it was felt that by a number of people, particularly the civil service element in GHQ, that perhaps there was no danger of war at all and that uh, the armed forces were now costing a disproportionate amount of money and perhaps to be a good economic measure to provide for the demobilisation of some of the forces which had, had already been mobilised. And in fact, plans were issued and orders made that one battalion and 11 cyclist squadrons would be demobilised as a matter of urgency before April of 1940. And the only thing that saved this, the implementation of this order was that um, uh, the war started in earnest. Well, the army in 1940 had expanded at least 10, perhaps 12-fold. And the, the, it expanded because we had the volunteer force. And without the volunteer force, the expansion would have been absolutely impossible. Now, I state that completely unequivocally. It would have been absolutely impossible. I thought the volunteer force as a whole was a, a mixed bag, some very good, some very bad. I instanced the City of Dublin Battalion received a great deal of training at night, very good training in as much as a number of instructors from the military college and from training units through the army were brought to give them instruction. And as a result of that, that when they were called to duty, they were effective leaders, volunteer leaders in their forces, and they were as good as the regulars in a great number of cases. On the other hand, some of the uh, volunteer units from the country areas uh, who did not receive the same amount of training, uh, didn't produce real results until they themselves got much greater experience and more intensified training. There was an immense influx of the best material in the country from a military point of view because there were people with enthusiasm, people with a patriotic determination to serve and no conscription could produce military material of this quality. In January 1941, the combat groups, or armed sections of the LSF, were segregated and became an entirely separate force called the Local Defence Force, or the LDF, as it became known. In Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway, 
the LDF was organized in rifle battalions commanded by army officers who were assisted by small cadres of army personnel. The Garda Shiakana involvement with the LDF in these cities virtually disappeared. The role of the LDF also changed, and their duties now included combat duties, such as the initial delay of enemy troops, guerrilla operations, demolitions and roadblocks, garrison and local defence duties, collection and distribution of impressed vehicles for essential services, communications, first aid, military intelligence, armed protective duties, military traffic duties and field security duties. A large proportion of the country's manpower of military age had made some contribution to the local defence force by the end of the Second World War. I joined the LDF in, in 1941. I wasn't in the LSF because I was moving around. I wasn't married then and I was moving. The country came down and into a place I liked. And it happened that the, the company commander in, in the Rat Mines area where I lived was working with me. <laughs> in the same section of the Department of Education. He said, you should be in the LDF. Oh. I would have said, all right. <laughs> it happened as simply as that. You see, for all the difficulties and ambiguities that may have been in the 1940-41 arrangement, at least they did list down here nine sets, nine things that we were to do, that the LDF was to do. That was the policy. That's what we were for. It was plainly stated in legislation. We had no doubt. Now, when we were brought into the FCA, we were part of the army. And what everybody knows, or at least everybody in the army should know what the army is for, but we didn't know. Nobody told us. We were just the second line reserve. Now, that doesn't tell you an awful lot. It doesn't tell you an awful lot. There was no, like, we didn't have a statement like that. The biggest exercises ever undertaken by the army were held in County Cork. We have long been aware of the growing efficiency of the army, and it was grand to know how well it acquitted itself under actual battle conditions. Antishak watched the manoeuvres, and he must have been well pleased with everything he saw, including the massive coastal guns. The climax of the exercises was reached when he reviewed the units as they marched through Cork. Their long battle practice seemed in no way to have tired them, and they swung past as though fresh from barracks instead of from forced marches and temporary bivouacs. But the Cork parade wasn't the end. They marched the 600-odd miles back to County Dublin for more manoeuvres, this time with the defenders of the capital, both regulars and LDF. Mr. De Valera watched them pass in a very informal review. Yes, it's been a hard year. Sacrifices have been made by rich and poor alike. Nobody has minded that. No sacrifice, no hardship can ever be too great when the reward is our own homeland, when the final prize is Ireland. I know you all feel with me the deep 
debt of gratitude we owe to all those who, at heavy personal sacrifice, joined the army, including the Marine Service and the various auxiliary defense organizations, and helped to guard us against the most serious of all the dangers that threatened. The officers, non-commissioned officers, and men of the regular army, already in service at the beginning of the war, formed with the reserve and the volunteer force, a well-trained nucleus around which it was possible in an incredibly short time to build up an efficient fighting force. To all of these, and to the many other voluntary bodies who helped in the national effort, to the men of our merchant marine who faced all the perils of the ocean to bring us essential supplies, the nation is profoundly thankful. The post-war plan provided for a regular army of 10,000 personnel, a first-line reserve of 45,000 and a second-line reserve of 60,000. The second-line reserve were a new force, on Forza Cosenta O'Toole, or the FCA. This force was established in 1946 and differed from the LDF in a number of ways. The most important difference is that it is an organic part of the defence forces. The order which released members of the LDF from their commitments with effect from the 31st of March 1946 excluded persons who had enlisted in the new FCA and much effort was expended to secure the services of officers and other ranks in the new force. The place of the new force in the military establishment was clearly laid down in New Regulations Defence Force Regulation R5. It dealt with enlistment, recruitment, enlistment, uh, dress, uh, pay, uh, length of commitment, length of service, extension of service, all that sort of thing. It had to be provided for because it couldn't be provided for under the regulations of this that were already existed. There had to be a new regulation to cover all this. There were also questions of funding. For instance, the, the units had to have, uh, they were relatively small, but they did have expenses that had to be met. In 1946, when the FCA began, we had no change in weapons at all in the Dublin units. We still had the 303 rifle, which we'd had since 1942. We had the bayonet that fitted that rifle, and we had the number 36 Mills, Mills grenade. They, they were the only weapons we had, and they were the weapons we continued to have in the first days, right up to 1957. From 1946 to 57, those were the weapons we had. During the war, when, when I was training recruits, We'd go out to the range and we'd fire what we call a group at 100 yards. The purpose of a group is simply to determine whether a soldier has learned his holding and all the rest was good enough to maintain a consistent point of aim on a target. Now, you go on from there to an application practice. You know that you are firing slightly high and slightly to the left. And your judgment must be how far down do you, to the right and down do you have to come to hit the target in the middle. And we call it an application practice. 
And during the war, we used to fire an application practice of 200 yards, and that was the end of it. But in 1946, we had a table which provided for a grouping practice, an application practice at 200 yards, an application practice at 300 yards, a rapid practice at 300 yards, and a snap shooting practice at 300 yards. Now, it wasn't quite what the army were doing. It was very close to it. In the first couple of years, uh, we had this problem with recruits and all that. But I mean, we could see, oh, geez, we could only get them trained. Like, you could do all kinds of things. There's tons of ammunition. You know, there's no problem. <laughs> you know, ammunition was like gold dust during the war. To, to the LDF fellas, anyway, whatever. It wasn't the regular army. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, this was this was nirvana to us. The skills required of you were much improved, raised to a great degree. And of course, it was, it was very challenging for the lads. Interest in marksmanship, of course, grew among the soldiers in a great way. We were to, it was too easy to get in. And it was too easy to comply with, with the regulations for staying in. And if you were half-hearted about it, you could remain on the books, come along when you had something happening that you were interested in. If you have spent your life on it like I have, and you're interested in everything about it, you can't understand why fellows, you can't really understand why fellows get drawn down. I suppose, so, as later on as an officer, you would, you, 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 you were responsible for trying to make it interesting. Let's put it that way. But uh, the unit could never get you trained as an even half-efficient soldier. But you were still there as a dead weight on the resources of the company. They were trying to get you trained. In the 50s, it was, there was a lot more manufacturing industry than there is now. There's a lot more service industry now. But in manufacturing industry at that time, it was almost universal. Every factory closed down for the first two weeks in August. So for many years, I had an awful lot of factory workers. And naturally, the first two weeks in August was, was when I took my outfit to camp, because that was when the majority of the men could be off. On, on the other hand, systems of manufacture are very different now. Is the individual man as vital as he was then? In 1957, they let out the reins a bit, and they gave us machine pistols, you know, submachine guns, 
and light machine guns. That was Gustav submachine guns and Wren, that's the World War Two, Wren uh, light machine guns. And these had a great effect. The enthusiastic fellows took to these with great gusto and a lot of put a lot into training with them and you know within a couple of years we were able to bring these weapons into our annual uh, competitions and all the rest of it and you know we eventually developed a good standard with those weapons so that was a uh, that was a little experiment they, they tried out and I suppose they were looking to see could they go the whole way and bring in the machine guns and the marchers and the anti-tank rifles. That's probably what they were after. I didn't tell me, but <laughs> that's what I assume in hindsight. And they were encouraged by the, the response they got when they introduced the submachine gun and the light machine gun. Because everybody got, you know, what I did was I got a whole lot of corporals together and we ran a specific course for those fellows. Not only to, how to fire and, and maintain the gun, but to instruct in the gun. And we, we hammered them very hard. And they were capable by the summer of 1957 of instructing in these guns. And they did, and we fired men on the range. We trained men during camp and fired them on the range. I remember it was down in Kilkenny we did it. Looking back, there, it was probably an experiment to see how the force would react to the introduction of additional weapons, and it did react very enthusiastically. And maybe it, it had an effect, and it confirmed them in the plans they were making and introduced in 1959. I don't know. The effective strength of the FCA up to 1959 was far short of the initial target of 60,000 set in 1946 for the second line reserve. Standards of efficiency varied widely. Tactical training rarely progressed beyond platoon level. Exercises at battalion level could be organized only on an area basis and therefore were rarely undertaken and even more rarely successful because the units exhibited such very varied levels of efficiency and they had no previous experience working together. The root cause of the problems of the FCA was the rapid turnover of personnel and, consequently, all through the 1950s, a disproportionate share of every unit's resources were permanently committed to recruit training in a never-ending battle against wastage to the detriment of more advanced training. An integration scheme with the regular army was implemented in 1959 New brigades were formed containing varying mixes of regular and FCA units. New FCA units were formed by the merging of former units. The old rifle battalions became new infantry battalions whose commanders were drawn from the army. There were two senses to integration. Number one, there was a the thing the FCA had to do because the units, the, the former battalions that were now companies of the new battalions, they had a major job of integration to do themselves because they weren't used to 
operating together in any sort of teamwork at all. And I'm not sure that they made a very good job of it, or that they even took as much interest in this as they should. Uh, as well as that, the regular people had the job of integrating us into the brigade and trying to see to it that we became effective enough to perform a useful function within the brigade as a reserve. So there were two sides to integration and uh, on balance, I think, it, the end of it, by the time it was scrapped in 1980, I think useful advances had been made in all kinds of ways. During the 70s and the 80s, the early 80s, the FCA carried out guard duties in barracks, especially along the border, in order to release the PDF or regular troops for other duties. Now, they have also carried out static guards on vital installations, for example, power stations, uh, reservoirs, vital bridges, and indeed for a period they also carried out um, security duty on RTE in Donnybrook. As everybody knows, in recent times they've been used to support the making of films such as Braveheart. But this is not a particular role for which we train the FCA, but it shows again the uh, flexibility that's involved in the force. When they have their basic training, they can be uh, utilised for, for a variety of purposes. When I was in fifth year in school, two of the officers came in to talk to us because I think that was the first year they were allowing women to join up. So they came into our school and they were talking. And um, I went down, but I wasn't, I wasn't old enough. I was only 16. So I went in and I registered then the following year. And I was selected. But they, I don't think they do that anymore. So it's word of mouth, really. And you find a lot of people who are in it have you know, older sisters or brothers in it and I had three uncles in it and my father was in it before me, so when they hear you're joined they think, oh, that's a great thing, I was in that years ago. No one really knows enough about it and it's hard to explain what we do until you go in and do it. I mean, a lot of people have no idea, apart from the Free Clothes Association, you know, that's all people know about it. But you have to get character references and then you have a short interview and then you have a medical. You have the medical um, after the interview if you get selected and that's tough, supposedly. <laughs> you have to, you know, if you don't, if you fail on that, there's no way of getting in. So there's a lot of people that will fail out of every group. People go down in their sight, their hearing, and they mightn't have even known themselves, you know, it's a surprise to them. You start off with foot drills and learning how to march, um, orienteering, map reading. and They have a couple of Sundays every year designated to your orienteering, so we all get a chance to do it. And if you're good, you can go on and enter competitions in it. And then the shooting, which I love. <laughs> you have to. You spend almost your full year learning about the gun and how to strip it and assemble it before you actually get a shot of it. And then when they start you off, they'll give you bullets with no kick. And uh, 
then you'll have you'll get the real thing. So you only shoot about twice, I think, in your first year. You have, but you have to shoot before you go on your first summer camp. We can't shoot without your defenders, and they're very, very strict on that. And then you, we maybe two weekends in a month, and there'll be a peak season. Usually between January, the weekends start to happen, and uh, you, you know, some years you might have five weekends, and others, you know, you might have two. It just depends because there's so many use in the range and so many booking the accommodation in Athlone because we have to go to Athlone to draw weapons and stay over there. The uh, standard uh, weapon of the FCA at present is the 7.62 FN rifle and the Gustav submachine gun. Uh, these were the weapons previously held by the regular army and uh, with the introduction of the new equipment into the uh, uh, regular army the, they've been now given to the FCA. The reasoning behind the current use of cast-offs or regular army cast-offs in the past was simply a financial one. Uh, it's very expensive to buy uh, large amounts of equipment and we, ha we are talking about very expensive equipment. Having said that, uh, the FN rifle is still a very, very effective and useful weapon and is used by many uh, armies throughout the world still. We have a small barracks in Roscommon and we're inside. And uh, then if we're doing the outdoor stuff, it's usually done in the barracks in Athlone because there's no proper lighting in Roscommon. Summer camp is basically where you go in on the week and you have six days of tough army training. It's just a revision of everything you've done during the year and you get to shoot on that week and you stay in for the full week, you can't get out and you get paid for it. That's the only time we get paid. A lot of people will get um, time off, they'll take it as part of their holidays. That's the only way you can do it. So if you're working, you have to get time off. Um, we have an Easter, the Easter parade where we're on show to the public. It's, and it's the one day where you actually get to see everyone who's in your own barracks. Because, you know, a lot, three stars and corporals, they're away, and, you know, as as you go on in it, people don't show up as much. and Well, there isn't, there isn't enough going on for them to be showing up. So Easter Sunday is the one big day where you see everyone. You get your two-star badge when you have your first summer camp done. You've just gone into your second year of training. Second year, there isn't much happening. A lot of attention goes to the recruits. Third year is um, a lot of preparation work is done for going on to do corporals. And they put a lot of effort into training the three stars this year. So hopefully they'll do that for us as well next year. There isn't any female corporals yet. Next year will be the first one. 
first women were inducted into the uh, FCA in 1990 and they were into, went into selected cores. But from 1992, all units, um, infantry and cores, other cores, have been accepting female recruits. Now the uniform worn by the, the women is similar to that worn by the PDF women, or the regular uh, soldiers. From the foundation of the FCA, the uniform has been and is similar to the regular uniform, but it has always had some distinguishing feature. This was normally the cap or the berry. Now, the original uniform uh, it was of a heavy woolen material with a short tunic, and it was buttoned up to the collar with matching slacks, and the slacks were tucked into the brown or brown-red leggings and boots. The cap worn initially was a Glenigary type cap with a green band on it. Now, as the regular uniform has changed, so has the uh, FCA uniform, but indeed at a much slower pace. And at present time, the FCA uniform is quite similar to the one that's worn by the, the uh, regulars, down to and including the combat uniform which is a recent issue to the FCA. The Greenberry worn by the other ranks and the Glenigary with the green band worn by the officers are again the main distinguishing features from the uniform worn by the regular army. Over the years and in, in years gone by, um, various restrictions have been placed on the FCA. For example, its overall strength is restricted uh, its annual training uh, period has been reduced from 14 down to 7 days. And again, in recent times, the regular um, training and administrative cadre that, that goes with them uh, has been reduced again in strength. Despite all of this, uh, most FCA units reach a very high standard of training, it has to be said. The morale in the FCA is very high, and this is evidenced by the fact that large numbers of young men and women are more than eager and willing to give up their free time to serve their country as part-time unpaid soldiers. Every unit virtually has a waiting list of eager volunteers who wish to join the FCA. We all mix together and look after one another. You know, we're all, we're all a group, every one of us sort of stick together when we go out and we meet at the weekends and you know, it's not all FCA, but you you meet a lot of new friends. I've met a lot of people, you know, that I might never have met only for the FCA. And you meet people too from Athlone and other barracks, barracks because of the different competitions and the summer camps. And this year we're all in Gormanstown, the whole 16th Battalion. So there'll be quite a crowd, a bit of crack, a lot of mouths to feed. <laughs> Because we're not in there five days a week, working nine to five, we're, with the only time a lot of us get to see each other is, you know, on our FCA outings and then if we do meet at the weekends. But you're not together all week and, you know, for me it's a big thing, you know, to go out and have an FCA weekend or whatever. Many young people today join uh, specific cores in, in the FCA in order to help them in their future careers. And for example, the medical corps is often a first step in a nursing or a medical career. 
And being a member of the FCA is a bonus for young people who wish to join the regular Defence Forces. But also, the experience gained is very valuable in any other career. Many of the regular army members, both officers and other ranks, uh, they get their first experience and contact with military in the FCA. And as such, the FCA is a very good uh, preparation ground for recruitment into the regular army. I'm bad about shooting, you see. Not very good at it, but, you know, and that's definitely in the blood. Because all my uncles are, you know, crazy about guns and shooting, and my own brother, he's, he's mad into shooting as well, you know. Well, I would never shoot a bird or anything now, just targets and cans or whatever, but and all my friends think I'm mad. It's, I mean, it's something different. I don't know anyone else. I don't know any other girl who likes shooting. The series training and getting up at seven o'clock after being out the night before. <laughs> That's not so good. Because the, the first line reserve is under strength, the FCA is in effect the reserve to the regular army. And it therefore has the same relevance uh, as it always has had. Now, with impending reorganisation of the FCA and of the, the regular army, and the further integration of the FCA into the regular army, it will have a, an even greater role to play within the Defence Forces and will become, in many ways, more relevant than it ever was in the past. Yes, and pay. Watch it. The rear face. Come out. Let's go. 